Right. Morning. How you doing? Got my vision people up here in the front row. I got something special for you guys. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Uh, love that. Glad you're here. We have a long way to go before the sun sets. So you guys ready to go to work? We're going to tackle a big topic today. I have this belief about the Bible that one of the things that we see God doing with the Scripture, and this is done intentionally, it's not an accident, it's done intentionally, is that every time we see a story where somebody messes up, we're going to see another story in the Scripture that's going to tie back to that in some way that's going to actually be a story where somebody succeeds. Here's why. Because I believe God wants to redeem every story. Every story in your life, and he uses the Bible as a platform to prove it. Okay, so I want to talk about this today. So we're going to talk about the fact that God today wants to redeem every story. And maybe for you and me, there's a few things that we can connect to in this as we work through the Bible together. So the word redeem in the Hebrew is the word ga'al. Let me hear you say ga'al. Ga'al. Now in traditional church world, what they've trying to translate um, redeem as is to buy back. And that's not wrong. Oh, by the way, ushers. Have Bibles for you? Hit your Bible hit. Hot fresh Bibles hit. Don't throw them like they do the peanuts at the game. That's don't do that. Hurt somebody. <laughs> uh, so this word it it does mean buy back, but that it's a little small of a definition to really get your mind around what redeem is. It means Redeem means buy back, like the word shower means get clean. Well, like, yeah, that happens, but it's bigger and broader and more fuller and more complex than that. The idea of redeeming is the same thing that you would think of when you go to, to the store to redeem a coupon. Like, if you think about it, you walk in with a piece of paper. It has no value. It's a piece of paper with some ink on it right? But because you and the store clerk agree that there's some value in this paper, it takes on a value because you said it has value. Does that make sense? Redeeming is about giving value to things that don't believe they have any value, and God wants to redeem every one of your stories. And I think that's powerful. Now let me show you how he intends to do it. In Exodus chapter 6, God makes some promises to his people. And these are really powerful. If you've ever celebrated a Seder meal during the Passover, you know that this is something, these, the four promises that are in Exodus 6 are the four promises of the Passover. And so I want to take a look at a section of the scripture and help us paint a picture of what God's going to do in your life. It says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I'll deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. Now that seems funny. Hello, my outstretched arm. Well, that means something. Let me tell you everything that I know about Egyptian hieroglyphics. I'm pretty much an Egyptologist. No. But here's what I know. Anytime that in Egyptian hieroglyphics that a, a character is depicted with their right arm outstretched like this, this is either a pharaoh or a god. 
And that's always the way that they're depicted. This is the symbol of power. The Greeks and the Romans and lots of other cultures pick up on this idea. Over time in history, what happens is they start to depict Caesars or kings or pharaohs or emperors or rulers or whatever culture they call them with their right arm raised with a scepter in it and in their left hand is scrolls. Which should give you some visual of maybe something connected to America. Maybe in a harbor outside of New York. Like, please understand, I am American to the core and I love liberty, but we're making particular statements to the world about where we believe our security comes from. Let me be clear. Your security comes from God and from God alone. That's it. But this is how they communicate. So God comes to them and he makes this promise. I'm going to give you value with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. You are going to watch me do stuff and you are going to say, holy moly. (laughs) Did you see what God just did? You won't even be able to believe it. Now here's the interesting thing. When Moses gives them this message, it says that they couldn't accept it. Because of their cruel bondage. Like, maybe you can connect to that. Maybe you know exactly what that feels like. That we want so badly for the promises of God to be true in our life, but we feel so overwhelmed, so beaten down, so devastated by whatever, the past, the present, a friend, a coworker, a situation, a context. God, I want it to be true, but I don't even know if I can buy it. Like, why would you give me worth? And how in the world are you going to make anything worth anything out of this mess? Maybe you know exactly what that feels like. So I want to show you some examples of this in the Bible. I want to show you some different ways that it looks in the Bible. There's several ways that this gets tied together. But um, we're going to do this, and then I want to talk to you maybe about how you and I can weather those in-between times. Because what I observe in the Bible is we love reading the Bible and going, I want to be part of a New Testament church. But the problem with the book of Acts is that it's like skipping a rock across the top of the water. It's like a God highlight reel where like God, boom, miracle, boom, miracle. But what you don't read is the two sentences in between that are like, and then for the next 10 years. Like (laughs) we love the moments where God shows up and redeems us. And those are coming. They are coming but they come in the midst of long seasons of faithful grinding. And that's where we have to weather our, and so how do we get through that? We'll talk about that at the end, okay? So I wanna talk about this at the beginning. We're gonna begin in Matthew chapter 18, where Peter asks Jesus a really interesting question that if you don't know what Jesus is doing, Jesus gives a really peculiar answer, okay? So let's read. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, Torah said three times. So Peter's being generous. He's being generous here. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Now, the Greek here says 70 times seven times, and it can be understood as 77 times. It can also be understood as 70 times seven times, which for you and I as Westerners raises a really important question. What's the number? (laughs) Right? 
I got to know, because if it's 490, that's fine, but at 491, you are dead. Like, all the angst that I held on to when I said I forgive you, but I didn't actually unleash the beast on you at 491. Just know that, right? What's the number? What Jesus is doing here is very Eastern, it's very Jewish, and it's very rabbinic. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi speaking to a Jewish person in a Jewish context, and he's doing it in a very Jewish way. And when we understand that, it opens up a whole new conversation with this passage. Because the weird thing is, Jesus then goes on to tell a parable about a guy who refused to forgive once and got thrown into hell. Like, ow! Why so harsh? Where's the 490 part? Right? What Jesus is doing here is throwing Peter back into a story from the Old Testament. And in that story, what we see is the point that Jesus is trying to make. That story comes out of Genesis chapter 4. Now what we know in Genesis chapter 4 is that Cain kills Abel, right? Cain kills Abel, and then God comes to him and says, Cain, why are you so downcast? Sin's crouching at your door, but you have to master it. And so what happens is God says, Cain, you're going to be an aimless wanderer. As a result of this, you're going to be an aimless wanderer. And Cain goes, God, that's too much of a weight for me to bear. And God goes, don't worry about it. I'm going to put a mark on you, which is another sermon for another day, so that no one will touch you. Okay, now I want to pick up the story there. And the story is going to be PG-13. Let's look at Genesis chapter 4. And Mark, set, go, Genesis 4. Boom! Cain made love to his wife. Sorry! She became pregnant. She became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. And Cain then was building a city, and he named the city after his son Enoch, which sounds sentimental, but what the heck is he doing building a city? He's supposed to be an aimless wanderer. Well, here's what's happening here. He still hasn't learned to trust that God's provision for him is enough. He doesn't want to stay faithful in the grind. He wants to take matters into his own hands. And then to Enoch was born Arad, and, and Arad was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Let's go to the next slide. Lamech married two women, one named Dedah, and the other, Zillah. Now, Zillah, really interesting character. She actually had a real estate app, and it was um, really good. You can find all kinds of information. Good partnership in the city that Cain built. It's a good partnership. And a dog gave birth to Jabal, and Jab he was the father of those who play basketball, which is really interesting. Jabal was the father of those who play his first was Kareem Abdul. It's a ball. Maybe that's too old of a joke. Uh, his father was, he was the father of those who lived in tents and raised livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes, which I think that's funny. Um, if you, you don't get to play an instrument. You're not my son. <coughs> Zilla also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. And Tubal Cain's sister was Naamah. 
Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 70 times, seven times. What just happened? What happened is, Jesus made a point to Peter that is far more important than the number. What he says is, if you ever stop forgiving people, it's not the person that you refuse to forgive that pays the price for that. It's your great-grandchildren. And that's a whole different conversation. See, the problem is when we refuse to forgive, we don't do it and make the other person pay. We create this guilt, angst, anger in our own heart and set a legacy of brokenness. You should never come to the place where you're not working at forgiveness. Ever. God redeemed the story. Let me give you another one. This is fun. Let me give you another one. Remember, God brings the Israelites out of Egypt. They go through the Red Sea, and they go to the base of Mount Sinai. They kind of camp there. Moses goes up on the mountain. There's a cloud that comes down. God comes and speaks with him. God writes the tablets. Moses comes down the mountain, and he sees that they've made a golden calf. You remember the story? He sees that they've made a golden calf. Now, I want to pick up the story there, and I want to show you something that happens that's really, really interesting. Let's read Exodus 32. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire, and he ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. I don't know why, but that is awesome. <laughs> I think about doing that with my kids. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Don't be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. It's my, it's my namesake, so I can pick the tone of voice that I want for him. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make gods for us who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, well, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. And they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and a calf popped out. It's the craziest thing. You should have seen it, Moses. I had no part in this. I'm innocent. Which is totally what we do when we do the wrong thing, right? Now, I want you to keep in mind, these people are using their gold for something. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control. I had somebody tell me, that's just like the church you pastor. <laughs> that Aaron was letting them get out of control. I was like, that's not funny. Um, so become, and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. What happened? They used their gold for their own devices and became out of control and became a laughing stock for their enemies. You with me? Are you with me? Yes. Okay, good, good. It's like sitting in an exit road in an airplane. You just need a verbal yes and we'll move on. Uh, so he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. And they said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other. Each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. 
And the Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day, about 3,000 of the people died. Now, let's, let me ask you a question. Did the Holy Spirit forget the number? No, the answer is no. He's God. He knows, like, everything. You should totally check him out. Super smart. No, he didn't forget the number. So this is a weird phrase, about 3,000. And it's something that if you're reading and you know that this is a God-inspired story, you should probably go, wait a minute. Why do I need to know that it was about? Why not just give me the number? Why, what is this phrase? What's going on here? Now, let's skip ahead to a passage out of Acts chapter 2. Every year, the Jews celebrate a festival called Shavuot. It's the festival of weeks. We call it Pentecost. Really important day in the life of Christians. Pentecost is a several day long celebration, but it's the day that the, the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles. There was the tongues of fire and the apostles spoke in tongues. And interestingly in Acts 2, there's 15 different nationalities of people mentioned, 12 apostles, and it says that every nationality heard in their native language. That's the miraculous gift of tongues. And then Peter begins to preach. Now, here's what, why this matters. Pentecost, Shavuot, is the festival where we remember the story of the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai. So for the entire festival, the Israelites have been reading passages out of the story of Mount Sinai. And they read as Moses goes up the mountain. And they read all this conversation that God has with Moses on the mountain. And they read the story of the golden calf. And they go, oi. Right? We're so embarrassed by that story. So Peter gets up and he preaches a sermon to the people, which basically is one of the worst sermons in history. It goes like this. Blah, blah, blah. Jesus is God. You killed him. Like, how would you approach that kind of preaching? <laughs> you guys would be like, I'm not coming back to you. You're terrible. One of the worst sermons ever. And yet, it says that when he was done, the people were cut to the heart and they said, brothers, what must we do? We'll do anything to make this right. Check this out. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other works, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. <laughs> what? On the day that we remember the story about about 3,000 people dying, about 3,000 people got saved. Why? Because the Holy Spirit forgot the number? No. Or because the phrase is calling us back to a point where God says, these are a different kind of people and I'm redeeming the story. Now, think about this for a second. What it will go on to say in Acts 2 is, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. Everybody had everything in common, and no one considered his possessions his own. They sold their possessions and gave to anyone who had need. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, and they enjoyed the favor of all the people. 
where when these Israelites coming out of Egypt took their gold, used it for their own devices, and became a laughingstock, this about 3,000 people are taking their possessions, selling it for other people's good, and they're enjoying the people's favor. Maybe there's a connection there. Like maybe we should pay attention to that because when the church builds its own ivory tower world, it becomes a laughing stock in the community. But when it reaches out and cares for people, like maybe that says something. And maybe there's some supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit that gains us favor in the community. Maybe there's that. Now let me show you one more. And this one's a little bit different. This is found in Genesis chapter 37 and 38. And it's too long to put in your notes, but I'll tell you the story. And, and I want to say this on the front end. It's in the Bible, so don't get mad at me. Okay? I don't want anybody emailing the staff going, I can't believe he said this story. So evil. No, it's in the Bible. It's God's word. So Jacob has 12 sons. Now, here's the interesting thing. He has two wives. He has one wife that he loves, Rachel, and then he has another wife that he doesn't love, Leah. She had hair up in a bun like this. It was really, <laughs> she's a princess. This story happened long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. I just um, thought you should know that. <clears throat> Here's the interesting thing. Rachel can't get pregnant. For whatever reason, she's struggling to get pregnant. But Leah seems to be able to have kids, like, on the regular. And it's really interesting because it raises a whole really set, interesting set of questions. Why is she the one that he doesn't love and she continues to have children with him? Like, I'm not talking bad on her. I'm talking bad on him. Like, what is he using her for? You know what I mean? Like, there's something amiss in that story. But she has Reuben and Simeon and Judah and Asher and Gad and all these sons. And then Rachel gets pregnant and she has a son named Joseph. Now, in the patriarchal world, whoever is the firstborn male child is really significant. Because when the dad dies, the firstborn male child gets 100% of the inheritance. Try this at Christmas with your kids. It works out great. They love it. They love it. Firstborn male child, you get 12 presents. All the rest of you, sorry, we didn't have any money left. Like, he gets everything. But in their world, they really celebrate this because now the firstborn child is there to steward the rest of the household, the rest of the clan, the Bedov, the, the whatever you want to call it. The rest of the group of people that they're responsible for, they want to steward that, right? Well, the problem is now Reuben is the firstborn. He's the behor. But when Rachel has Joseph, because he's the firstborn of the wife that he loves, he tries to make Joseph the firstborn. Now, how does that go over with his brothers? Not so much good. And in fact, Jacob gives Joseph a coat of many colors. And we go, what is that? What does the Technicolor dream coat have to do with like, why, why is that there? Why is that story even noted? Here's why. Because that's the symbol of him trying to set him aside as the behor. And his brothers don't like it. Now, on top of that tension, Joseph has a dream when he's 17 that his brothers are going to bow down to him. And he goes and tells his brothers, he had this dream or you were bowing down to me, so... Have you ever seen the movie Avengers? 
You know the, the scene where Thor and the Hulk are fighting, and they're rolling through the airplane hangar in this big ship, airship, and they're knocking stuff over and breaking things, and Scarlett Johansson's character, whom I don't remember her name, um, goes, boys! And they both go, snap to attention, right? And then the Hulk does this, <laughs> and sends him flying. That's exactly what they did to Joseph. You know, you know that that's what they did. If you had an older brother, that you, or if you were the older brother, so I was the youngest kid in my family, so I've been going through a lot of therapy about this. <laughs> you know that happened in your house. You know it did. I'm just saying. They don't like it. So Joseph is out one day taking food to his brothers. They're out herding sheep, and they see him, and they go, hey, let's kill him. <laughs> you know, like you do. Um, <laughs> we don't like him. Let's kill him. So Reuben, who's actually the firstborn, he says, no, we can't kill him. Let's sell him. <laughs> That's a way better idea. That's a way better idea. So what they do is they sell him to a, a group of Ishmaelite Amalekites, which is a, oh, this is amazing, right? Uh, another sermon for another day. Um, but that, they sell him and they haul him down to Egypt. They take his coat, tear the coat, put some goat's blood on it. Judah takes the coat to his dad and says, do you recognize this? He doesn't say he's dead, but he doesn't really be honest either. What a mess. And we got to redeem this story because Judah the the is the lineage of the Messiah. Like, we got to redeem Judah. The next story, logically, should be Joseph in Egypt. Makes sense. And it is, except for this one really weird story stuck in Genesis 38. And I'm just going to preface this. No moral giants in this story. Judah has three sons. The oldest son marries a, a girl named Tamar. And the oldest son dies and doesn't have any children with Tamar. Now, in this, in this culture, the tradition is that when a guy dies and doesn't have children with his wife, his next-in-line brother will take the wife and have children with her in his brother's name. Well, apparently, his second son, Judah's second son, doesn't like this. And I'm not going to tell you about it. Read Genesis 38. It's you. Um, God kills him. So Onan dies, and then Judah's second son dies, and then Judah comes to her and says, my third son is too young to be married. And there's a lot of debate about, like, is he actually too young, or do you just believe she's cursed? And there's probably a little bit of both in that, but he sends her home to live with her father until he can sort this out. Now, she is covenantally still under Judah's protection. Well, Judah is out herding the sheep one day, and he needs, I don't know how to say this delicately, he decides he needs some release. So he goes to town to hire a prostitute. Tamar finds out that he's trying to hire a prostitute. She gets dressed up like a prostitute and meets him on the road. They have a conversation, and you're like, well, how doesn't he recognize her? Well, because she's got a veil on her face. That's why. So you can't see her face at all. They, they have a conversation, and they agree that the price of this little um, interaction is going to be a goat. 
And they're like, that sounds great. I'm going to trade you a goat for this. He goes, I don't have a goat right now, but take my staff and my belt as collateral, and I'll bring you a goat, and I'll get them back. Now, here's the deal. Belt and staff, super important, but another sermon for another day. Well, what happens is, apparently some time goes by, and Judah never really takes the goat, because Tamar finds out that she's pregnant. Like, there's some time lapsed in there. And you got to know what's not written in the story is that while Judah's out there herding sheep, all of his buddies are like, hey, wh where's your staff? And he's going to be like, I don't, I don't know. Uh, you know me, always losing things, dropping stuff. I don't know. Well, what happens is he finds out that she's pregnant, and here's what he says. Burner. Now, he has the right to do that. She shamed the family. They bring her out to him, and he says to her, who made you pregnant? And she goes, I don't know, but he gave me this staff and this belt. <laughs> Do you recognize this? <laughs> and now all of a sudden we understand why this story's in there. Because Judah gets it. He's like, okay. He actually winds up taking her as his own wife. I mean, this is a whole, that story is whacked. That story is messed up, right? But they are in the lineage of Jesus. No Tamar, no Jesus. So there's that. If you think that God can't use your messed up story, you're fooling yourself. Like their story is messed up. And so is yours. And what I believe with all of my heart is that all the stuff that we carry through our life, the shame, the guilt that hold us back, that keep us stuck eating the same old fruit over and over and over again, God wants to redeem all of those things and give them worth and value. And the question is, in the in-between time, how do we get through it? And so I want to share a story with you. Uh, 2017, there, there's really only one word to describe 2017 for me. Uh, and the word is trauma. Like it was just, it was just traumatic. The year, this by far and away, the hardest year of my life for so many reasons. You know this, it's never the first problem that gets you. It's the 12th one that got thrown on the pile, Right? And we had, I mean, it was just terrible. We had a son that got diagnosed bipolar and the roller coaster and all of that. I mean, it was a mess and we're still working through that. My, in the middle of that, we had several other things happen and, and we had a son that uh, turned 18 and went out on his own. We had to turn loose of him and just a lot of different things that happened. And in the middle of that, it surfaced a lot of issues between my wife and I. And there were just several points where we're looking at each other going, uh, do, are we going to make it? Like, are we going to survive this? just her and I together as a couple. Like, I didn't think I was going to die. I just didn't know if I was going to be married. Which is kind of a big deal in the ministry. 
In the meantime, tandem to that, without exception to the person, every single person on our staff, their worlds were falling apart. Like, without exception, that it was some of it was kids, some of it was marriages, some of it was family trauma outside. Of, I mean, there was a lot going on. We had one guy on his staff, his daughter in the span of six months had nine surgeries, none of them planned. She had a cyst at the base of her spine, and they, they, it would not allow proper fluid exchange from the spinal column, and so she'd build up pressure in her head, and she'd get these terrible headaches. So they removed the, the um, cyst, but it didn't work, and so she went numb from the waist down. She couldn't tell when she was going to the bathroom. She's 16. It's kind of a big deal when you're 16. So they went in and put a shunt in, and it fell out. And then they had to replace it, and it got plugged. And then they put another one in, and it didn't work. Like, it was just one thing after another thing after another thing. In the middle of that, his father died. His father was his kind of, like, command, like, confidant, support, strength, encourager. His father was the guy that, when he had a hard day, would pray for him. Like, we all have those people. His father died. Tomorrow, when we go home, I am going to help him bury his mother. This is 2017 for person after person after person. And we were just in the middle of this going, God, I can't, like, it's not even feeling like a boxer up against the rope just taking hits. It's like I gave up, laid down, and I'm laying there stone cold out and still just getting pounded. Like, what is going on? And everybody that I was connected with was in the same position. And I'm not even exaggerating. Like, it was the most bizarre thing. Now, tandem to that, my wife and I were having a conversation one day about the worship culture of our church, and we just felt like our people sing the songs, but they're like, they're really super apathetic. I mean, they're, they're singing, kind of, but they, they, they show up late. They leave early. They're not taking their worship seriously. You know, uh, Hebrews 12 says, let us approach the throne of grace with proper worship to our God, full of reverence and awe. And I'll let you wrestle with what reverence and awe looks like for you, but I can be pretty sure that reverence and awe doesn't look like showing up late. Certainly doesn't look like leaving early. Like Reverence and awe looks like being prepared when you walk into this space. To put your God on display in front of your church family. I just didn't understand, like, what's the apathy? Where's the apathy coming from? And my wife said to me, my wife is a brilliant woman, by the way. She said, well, I think if you want to change the culture of the worship in our church, then you need to be up front setting the standard for what worship looks like. And I said to her, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. In my heart. I said that in my heart. <laughs> what I said, because you, if I'd have said that out loud, I'd have woke up with a, my hand on my head and a knot underneath of it. I, what I said out loud was, you know, I don't know if I really agree with that. Like, I'm going to have to wrestle that. I don't think that's true. Like, I don't, people don't notice. People don't notice when you're up front worshiping. And I got, I've got people to talk to and connect with. There's important conversations going on in the lobby. As if in a conversation with me is more important for you than a conversation with God. That's how I felt. I'm really a big deal in my own mind, apparently. But that's really what I thought. 
That's really what I thought. Now, um, we, and I asked some of my pastor friends that were part of our staff, and I was like, do you think that would make a difference? No, no, that wouldn't make any difference. Okay, then I'm right, and my wife obviously is wrong. This is one of those rare moments where I was able to stand in my truth. Um, as you can tell, the story's not going to go well. <laughs> so we, we went to this event, and one of the things that I observed there was that the guys that were part of that church, the guys and gals that were staff of that church, were all up front worshiping. And I noticed it. Like, I noticed it. And, uh, and so I, I was like, okay, maybe I need to think about this. So I went back to my wife, and I said, okay, we'll try it. And so I went to our staff and said, guys, on a scale of one to 10, how important is worship? And they were like, oh, it's a 10. I said, I agree. On a scale of one to 10, how important is discipleship? And they said, oh, it's, it's a 10. I said, I agree. On a scale of one to 10, how well have we done at discipling our people to worship? And then, you know that sound that plays when you lose on The Price is Right? <laughs> That's the sound that hit the room. We were like, all of a sudden, we were like, man, we have dropped the ball. And I said, I know. And it's my fault. And I'm going to fix it. And so every Sunday, every service, our staff, every one of our staff is in the front row leading worship. Now, we're not leading singing because some of us don't sing well. I don't care about how you sing. I want you to worship. And so we're up front setting the standard for what that means for us because we want our people to know what it looks like. Because now the phrase in our church is that when the, forgive the phrase, you'd fire me if I, didn't, if I say this wrong, when the crap hits the fan, because you know that's how you feel about the light, your life sometimes. When that stuff goes on, now our phrase is not, Lord, what are you doing? It's, I'm going to worship my way through this. And here's what I found. If you read the Bible, God's people, the ones that weather the storms well, David, Abraham, Job, the ones that really hang in there in the tough stuff, the universal connectedness to their story is that when it falls apart, the first thing they do is worship. How do you endure the stuff that's going on in your life until the day when God shows up and fulfills his promise to redeem every story? You worship from here to there. It's the only way what I didn't realize at the time was how connected worship is to trauma in the Bible. Like, it is a profound connection that I had never made before. Now, in the last six months, let me tell you what I've seen. As we've started worshiping, these two thoughts that weren't connected, the world is collapsing and we need to change the worship culture, have all of a sudden become interlaced. And what I've watched God do in the last six months is nothing short of miraculous. Because all of a sudden, his people as a community are crying out to him for real. Like we're not playing with our worship anymore. And it's changed everything. 
Now, some of the circumstances for people are still hard. They're still difficult. Like my family is not out of the woods yet. But here's the thing. When I worship God, he may or may not change my problems, but he always changes my perspective. And that changes everything about my ability to put him on display well to the world. So if I want God to redeem my story, I have to passionately worship him until he shows up. Like, that's my part. And some days, I'll be honest with you, some days all you have is to get on your knees and cry and say, God, I don't got words. I don't have words for this. But my heart worships you because I know you can. I read the stories. I've seen what you can do. And I will not fold. That resolve comes from worship, not from strength of character. And so I want to give you some implications to this sermon, some things that I think are particularly important. There's probably lots of places where you could apply this, and that's awesome. You do that. You apply it wherever the Spirit's working in your heart with it. That is okay. But these are some things that I thought might be kind of a big deal for us to walk away from. Let's look at some implications here. Implication number one. No matter how far you've gone, God wants to redeem your story. You read Judah and Tamar. You can't mess up so bad that God won't come and deal with that. I've tried. <laughs> Some of you guys know exactly what I'm doing. Like, I tried to mess up and God still found me. I tried to mess up real bad and God still found me. Second implication. There's no story that's not worth redeeming. You haven't gone so far that the love of God can't give your story value. So if you're sitting in your mess like the Israelites going, I can't even accept that there's a God out there that would actually have any reason for me because of this cruel bondage that I find myself in. God wants to set you free. Third implication, the church must be defined by the same passions that God has. And if it's his passion to redeem every story, so should it be ours. We must be in the business of doing what God's passionate about. Now, last implication. We're in the change lives business. I don't know if you know that. We're not in the business of truth management. Your truth is important and it matters and you should study it and you should know it. But we're in the change lives business and your truth is only as good as it changes lives. And let me tell you what I mean. When I was in Bible college, I was taught that it was the preaching of the word of God I got some reps at this. That has held the church together over the centuries. And so when I got into my first ministry, I was 21, I was a senior pastor. Let me tell you a dumb move. Make a 21-year-old a senior pastor. I learned that. And I was like, that's a great idea. And I started in this church in downtown Boise, and it had 15 people in it. And I was like, here we go. The revival is on like Donkey Kong. Here we go. <laughs> and I start preaching. And I mean, I am bringing the fire, right? Immediately grew the church from 15 to 8. 
us what happened. Yeah, testify on that one. That you know, all that kind of preaching. It's like, this is going to change everything. No, it just really made me like feel yucky inside. That's what happened just now. It didn't do anything for me. Um, I it's hardest year and a half of my life and learned so much. It's one of those moments, and you have these seasons where you're like, I don't ever want to do it again, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. Because I learned so much about God in that process and about who he really was and about what he really cares about. Here's what I've learned. The preaching of the word is critical and it's important and it's necessary and it needs to continue and continue passionately and powerfully. But it is the testimony of God moving among his people. That is what's held the church together through the centuries. And that is the story that needs to be told again and again and again. Because while you receive your deliverance, I'm in the grind. And then I get the, the redemption one day. God shows up and is like, oh my gosh, this changes everything about everything. And then you're in the grind. And together as a community, we can help one another. This is almost like the Bible. Like Hebrews 10 says, consider how you can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let me tell you how you can spur me on. Not by being right. You spur me on by telling me the story of how when you were in my position, you wanted to give up just like I did, and you didn't, and God showed up, and holy moly, what happened? Maybe in your small groups this week, or around your dining table with your family, or maybe at your accountability group, wherever you have your Christian conversations during the week. Maybe some of your conversation might ought to revolve around where's the testimony of God showing up and transforming your life? Where is it? Because we need it. I need it. You need it. We sit in the middle of these really hard places for all kinds of reasons. I need to know that I have a God who hasn't forgotten that his intent is to redeem every story. Maybe just a few thoughts for you to think about as you head into the week. Thank you guys so much.